Hello, and welcome to the RUF Stanford podcast. RUF Stanford is a ministry that relies 100% on the generosity of donations in order to serve the Stanford community. Feel free to support us by going to give2ruf.org. We hope you enjoy the sermon. Uh, So I'm going to read from Colossians 3, and we'll talk about it. If you've been raised, if then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness, all of which are idolatry, on account of which these, the wrath of God is coming. In these, you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away. Anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. Here there is neither Greek nor Jew, circumcised nor uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. So put on, then, as Christ's chosen ones, as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another. If one has a complaint against another, forgiving each other as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. And above these all, above all of these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of God stands forever. Let's pray. Father, as we think about these words and try to piece together what they mean for our lives, I pray that you would grant us the imagination to see the world and to see ourselves the way you see us. I pray that you would grant us a heart big enough to receive what you have to teach us, that we would be willing to be challenged, that you would challenge us, and that we would be willing to be comforted and that you would comfort us. So teach us, Father God, Spirit, please work. In your name we pray. Amen. Um, so we have 7th graders, some of you are, sorry, yes, 7th graders, 7th graders, some of you all know. The other day I was talking with one of them, Shelby, about cursing, and she came to me to talk about how her friends tease her because she doesn't curse, and she felt embarrassed by that, and I said to her, I said, Shelby, have me and mom ever given you a list of words that you're not allowed to say? And it dawned on her in that moment, No. We have not given her a list of words that she's not allowed to say. And I said, what have we always taught you about language? We didn't give you a list of words. And she remembers what Elizabeth always says, which is, use your words to build others up in love. And I told her, I said, Shelby, now if we had given you just a list of, hey, here's a list of words, could you avoid those words and still be a nasty person? The answer we all know is yes, right? But what we're talking about is something wholly different. We're saying, use all of your words to love and build people up. And in order for that to happen, something more fundamental has to change in us. You can't simply commit to not using certain words, right? You have to ask harder questions like, who am I? What do I love? And this is really really the question. What are the things in my heart that drive me to speak about people and to people the way I do? 
And the reality is, that's a lot harder than just avoiding a list of words. That kind of transformation is the transformation that Jesus is after. Jesus is not simply after rule adherence. That's what we talked about last week. The emptiness of any kind of religion that simply insists on rules. There's only one thing that can actually change you and transform you the way God intends to change you and transform you. And that is, the only thing that can change you is a relationship. Only relationships can change our hearts. Rules can modify our behavior on the exterior. And for many of us, that's all we've wanted or tried to do. And it's either left us smugly religious and judgmental or fake or giving up. Because all we ever had was rules. Rules don't change hearts. And God is after heart change, and only the love of Jesus can do that. Uh, In South Carolina, we had friends that uh, in our last couple of years there adopted a nine-year-old orphan from Russia. And he was brought into a new country, and he was brought into a new family, and he was given a new name, and he was given a home, And he was given things he had never had before, like all the food he needed or wanted, clothes. He was given an education. He was given a future. It was a whole new life. A life in which he was loved. But here's the thing. At first, he didn't always act like a member of the family. Because he had habits from his old way of living as an orphan. So he had habits of being afraid, habits of being insecure, habits of not knowing who he was, didn't know whose he was, or who loved him, or if he would ever have a home. And so he did things like sneak food because he'd been used to never having enough. So he would do things like lie because that's how he had always protected himself. He was sometimes frustrated and kind of violent because that's how he'd always defended himself. He would hoard things because he didn't believe that everything they had was his. Because that's what his previous life required of him. And he brought those habits into his new life. He had a new life and yet had to learn how to live into the freedom and the joy of it. And they didn't lead him into the freedom and the joy of it through threat and through fear. Because that kind of motivation was the motivation of his old life, right? That's what he lived under. Instead, what slowly brought him into living as a son instead of living as an orphan was their love. Fear fear and rules can modify how we behave, but it can't change from within, within. Love does. And so, if you're a Christian, Christians, the reason that we can't change or our change feels superficial is because actually what's happening is we're just trying to act out some rules that we don't really believe in. Or, or maybe the reason that you've walked away is because you never knew how much Jesus loves you. You just mostly thought you were supposed to behave for a God that you don't really know. Or maybe you don't want Jesus to be in your life. You just always viewed him as an assistant in your life. And Jesus doesn't aim to be an assistant in your life and help you pursue the life you want. To know Christ is to know his love. And to know his love is for him to be everything. And if you're not a Christian, maybe if you're skeptical, if you find yourself kind of on that end of things, maybe the reason that you're actually rightly suspicious of Christianity is because you feel like you've mostly seen Christians who aren't in love with God, but who are either proud because they do follow the rules or self-loathing because they don't. 
Jesus' aim in all of your lives is for you to know His love so deeply that it changes who you are. It's His goal for you. It's for you to know you're loved. That's Jesus' goal for you. Christianity is not about following rules. It's about knowing the love of Jesus and the life that 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 kind of love produces. And what makes Christian obedience distinctly Christian is not your quantitative goodness. It is not doing more good things and fewer bad things. And in fact, we can honestly admit that plenty of people who don't know Jesus are quantitatively better at being good. What makes Christian obedience Christian is that it's done in love for Jesus. In other words, it's a a transformation that happens because you're united to Him in love. A new life is the fruit or what is produced or proceeds from your relationship with Jesus. To talk about that tonight in Colossians 3, just two points, how Paul walks us into that kind of life, is he wants us to remind us who you are and then from that talk about what you do. Remind us who you are, who you are in Christ. And this is the main point. There is an old you. I want you to think about yourself this way. These are the categories Paul gives us. There is an old you that Christ has done away with, and Paul is inviting you to live in light of the new you in Jesus. Now let's go into that because that sounds weird for a second. And the first thing I want you to notice is the verb tense of all the things Paul talks about with regard to Christ. He says... If you have been raised with Christ, saying if you're in faith, then you've been raised with Christ. He says, for you have died. Your life is hidden with Christ. Christ who is your life now. You are God's God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, having put off the old self and having put on the new self. Notice the tense of these. None of these are future possibilities for a Christian. Kind of, oh, this is a future possibility for you if you obey. Paul is talking about them as if they're present realities. All of Paul's imperatives for the Christian life are not held out as conditions that you have to meet in order to get life from Jesus, but rather the imperatives are grounded in what you already have in Jesus by faith. This is called the doctrine of union with Christ. It sits at the center of all of Paul's writing. The doctrine of union with Christ is this, that what is true of Jesus is now true of you. So what do these phrases mean? In Colossians 2, Paul had kept saying, you've got to see that the old order of things, the way that you used to live, the way you lived and the way you actually believed that the world worked when you didn't know Jesus, verse 3, you're dead to that way of life. What does that mean? That that way of life no longer rules you. It no longer masters you. You're dead to sin. It's not your master. What does it mean? What is the old order of things that Paul wants to give you and that Jesus does give you freedom from? Here's the old order of things, the old powers that in Christ you're free from. Here's one. If you are thin, you can be loved. You're dead to that narrative. That's a lie. If you're successful, you'll be full. That's a lie. You don't have to live in tyranny to that narrative anymore. If you behave, God will bless you. Lie. You don't have to live in tyranny to that narrative anymore. Jesus freed you from it. If you perform for people's acceptance, you'll feel secure. We all know that's a lie. You're free from it. If you get trashed, you can feel okay with yourself. We know it doesn't work. It's a lie. If, if you get power, 
You never have to be afraid. If you get into Stanford, all your wildest dreams will come true. If you make an impact, you can feel significant. If you get revenge, you'll be satisfied. If you commit to anything, you'll miss out. If you make money, you'll be happy. If you give money away, you can feel like you're a good person. If you manage to become competent in a ton of different spheres and please so many different people, well, that's everything, right? If you optimize your talent, you'll find completion. If you optimize for your own happiness, you'll be happy. Also, death will destroy you and all that is good will be taken from you. All of those things are lies. And we all believe them and they're killing us. And they rule us. And Paul is saying, in Christ, you're dead to that old order. Those are not the rules that govern you anymore. Those are not the things that govern the lives of those who are in Christ. Think of it like this way. Like a country that had been ruled by an evil dictator and everyone lived in fear of the evil dictator and tried to follow his rules out of fear and that country's been liberated. And people in rural villages don't know they're free yet. And Paul has come to say, you don't have to live in fear of those old rules and that dictatorship and that old order anymore You have been liberated. And so you live in the same place you used to live, but you stop living like the same fears and rules govern you. Because they don't. Jesus defeated them and all of their power. He took away sin's power to condemn you by nailing our sin to the cross. He took away worldly successes and achievements culture power to be how you value yourself because He valued you regardless. He took away the myth of worldly beauty and its power to make you feel ugly because He found you lovely. He took away your need to please everyone by telling you He is pleased with you. He took away your need for worldly wealth by giving you all that is His. He took away your need to be omnicompetent by actually inviting you into His family where we share all of our giftedness with each other. He took away your need to chemically alter your state to be comfortable with yourself because He loves weird, socially uncomfortable you. He took away judgment on you by being judged for you. And He took away death's power to end you by rising again from the dead for you. So someone who is in Christ walks around Stanford seeing people still ruled by these old things. And a Christian is not someone who's proud, but is grateful and humble and actually laments the tyranny of these old things and longs that everyone would have the freedom Christ offers. You have died with Christ. You have risen with Christ. In Christ, your life is hidden. The old you that was helpless in sin, that's afraid of rejection, the old way you thought the world worked, you're free from all of that. In Christ, you are dead to it. It's not you anymore. You don't have to live ruled by those lies and fears. That's why life in Christ is freedom. You're free. You're free now. We live as those who were risen with Christ, dead to the old self, dead to sin, dead to fear, and alive in Him. This is what Paul is telling you, that things are now different for you. You are not an orphan anymore. We are so used to living in fear and living by fear, living unsure that we can ever be loved, unsure of whose we are and who we are, and Paul is telling you who you are now 
And an orphan doesn't always feel their new identity and doesn't always remember their new identity when they're adopted. But that doesn't make it any less true. You are holy, which means you are God's. You belong to Him. And you're beloved. He loves you. And when he says, seek the things that are above where Christ is, he's saying, look at the new identity you have in Jesus. Paul is inviting you to live out of who you are now in Christ, in Christ, union with Christ, that what is true of Jesus is true of you. The power of resurrection life is available to you now. Maybe that's a weird idea to think about. He says, you've been raised with Christ. Christ is risen, so you can live as someone who's risen. It's maybe a little bit like you have an asset that you don't know you have. And you can use it. And maybe you've never used it before. It's a little bit like this. My friend Scott, whose dad, when he was very, very young, created an investment account for his son Scott and began to put his, his father began to put his own money into it to give to Scott. It wasn't a trust fund. It wasn't protected from him. It was his son's money, even at a young age. And he told him about it at a young age. And he said, this money that I've given you is yours. And what Scott felt when he became, got out of college is, I have all this stuff my father's given me, but something in me, the world, flesh, pride, right, said, no, 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 you've got to make your own money, you've got to save up, you've got to rent, don't use the gifts you have from your father. But instead, his father said, no, you have these gifts, go buy a house the day you get out of college. He didn't have to live by the old rules. He was free to live with the wealth that he had because he was his father's son. You are risen with Christ today. The resurrection is yours. If the resurrection is yours, can you name anything worthy of fearing? Is there any cause to be afraid of anything if the resurrection is yours? See, this makes fearless people, right? Because of what you have in Christ. You can live today, right now, as someone whose sin and shame is taken away. As someone whose identity is not shaped by other people's opinion. As someone whose joy is not precariously found in perfect social or vocational opportunities. And someone who has no fear of the cost of loving an outsider. Uh, Notice what he says. He says, your identity is no longer even your socioeconomic place, your ethnicity, your religious observance. In Galatians 3, Paul goes even further and says, your identity is not even your gender. There's no male or female in Christ. And he's not saying those categories don't exist. He's saying they don't define you anymore. Because you're in Christ. And in Christ, you have all the things you've all been looking for. Love, forgiveness, peace, grace, fullness, and resurrection. You have life. A little bit of it is kind of like this. To get to that second point is, if you remember the time that you committed to Stanford, you got in and you decided to come to Stanford. You're a senior in high school. You're still dressed like a senior in high school. You still wore your school colors. You still wore your high school hoodie. And you still had your high school social groups. But then something new became true of you. A newer, bigger identity. And you went and bought a Stanford hoodie. And you started wearing a Stanford hoodie. 
right? And all of a sudden, you felt actually a little bit different and a little bit less tyrannized about your high school friend group because you became aware that you were part of a new community, right? You weren't here yet, but it was yours, and you wanted to start to look and think and act like a Stanford student. You had a new identity, and the old tyrannies of high school started to fade and die. Seniors are experiencing this now. Seniors are the most psychologically and spiritually healthy spring quarter of their senior year, usually. Because there are a lot of seniors who have a job. I don't want to make you nervous if you don't have a job. It's okay. Go with me on the illustration. But it's interesting to talk to seniors and they have a job. They actually illustrate kind of what the life of a Christian should look like because they become a little bit, they get relaxed, right? They blow off some homework like a Christian should. (laughs) They hang out with their friends more like a Christian should. FOMO doesn't rule them. They're more settled, they're a little more chill because something new is true of them. And the rules and the orders and the pressures and the fears of Stanford are dying in their heart, right? And they're starting to be governed by a new identity. Well, your identity is in Christ and you can live in it today, right now. So what does that new life look like? That's who you are. What does it look like? And Paul gives us two images. He gives us in verse 5, put to death. And then he gives us verse 12, put on then. He says, it looks like killing sin and putting on clothes that fit. Two great images. The way one friend said it is this, is Paul doesn't say suppress sin. Like sin is like a beach ball that you're trying to hold under the water, right? And this is how we normally think of it. Restrain ourselves. Don't let the bad thing come out. It's not what Paul's talking about. That's suppressing sin. He says, kill sin. The way J.I. Packer said it is the meaning... It's not just that bad habits must be broken, but sinful desires and urges must have the life drained out of them. Verse 6 says, On account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. Jesus hates these things. Jesus hates sin. He does. Because He's good. And He hates everything that destroys love and joy and peace and beauty. And He will destroy anything that divides us, anything that promotes fear, and anything that uses and misuses people. Because He is good, He hates everything that makes the world sad. And living in Him and with Him will mean we begin to long to kill in us what makes Him sad and what breaks this world. To kill something means that you have to find out why and where these things get life. And then go and do battle there. So where do they get their life? Paul tells us. He gives us the list of all these sins, right? Sexual morality, impurity, passion, evil desire, covetousness. And he tells us where do they get their life? These things are all idolatry. Idolatry is when we seek from created things what only God can give, namely life. And so our sin is not just our sins, right? The things we do externally, those things are actually symptoms or fruit of a deeper problem in us. Paul tells us idolatry. Idolatry is the heart issue. It's a worship issue. It's something your heart is locked in on, what your heart's set on. And so to put sin to death is not simply to restrain some bad behavior externally. Right, giving, giving yourself a list of words you can't say. No, to put sin to death is to address issues of the heart. 
You can't kill sin by creating rules and techniques to restrain yourself. You kill your sin by setting your mind and your heart on Jesus. That's what he means when he says, seek things that are above, set your mind on things that are above. It's a little bit like this. To love Elizabeth well in our marriage, I have have behaviors and habits and loves and allegiances and loyalties that make our marriage, that hurt her, make our marriage difficult, right? We all bring our baggage into it. The way for me to become the person that Elizabeth needs me to be in marriage is not for me to master techniques. It is to set my eyes and heart on Elizabeth. And in setting our mind on Christ and not setting our mind on being strong, that'll begin to give you the power to put sin to death because He's inviting you not into restraining your desires, but into the transformation of your desires when you discover His love. Verse 9, let's talk about one of the sins. Verse 9, lying, right? It's a great sin. It's a classic. Um, How do we usually try to kill sin? This is the way my friend said He said, usually we try to kill lying by scaring ourselves, right? If you lie about something, you'll have to create another lie and then create another lie and the lies will get bigger and then you'll get caught and your friends will hate you and you'll never get a job and you'll live alone for the rest of your life, right? So don't lie, right? That's our method for trying to kill lying. Instead, Paul is saying, you have got to see that the sin is idolatry. So ask yourself, when I lie, what am I worshiping? I'm worshiping the approval of others. Because when we lie, we do it so that someone will love us. We want to be accepted. We want to avoid rejection. And so we are serving, we are worshiping the approval of others. It's our master because you don't believe that Jesus approves of you already. Jesus has accepted you. Jesus loves you. And Jesus will never reject you. You see, what you need is not a technique. You need Jesus. And so to stop lying, you don't need willpower to do better. You need to know again what you have in Jesus. That everything you want from that lie you already have in Jesus. So now you can become someone who tells the truth. Someone who participates in the remaking of a beautiful world by becoming a truth teller. You put sin to death by the power of Jesus, not by the power of self-restraint. And instead, and I love this imagery, he says you begin to put on them. Put on as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, Humility, meekness, patience, bearing with others, forgiving others if you've been forgiven, and above all love, which is really the summary of all of these things and holds them together. These traits are very threatening to someone who doesn't know who they are. Because these traits are about self-giving. These traits are the only things that will begin to mend the broken world. These traits are the only things that will mend your family. These traits are the only things that will mend your friendships and your broken friends. Do you know winning an argument won't mend your family? Do you know winning an argument won't mend things between you and your roommate? That's the method all of us have tried our entire lives. Has it worked yet for anyone? No, never, right? You know what will mend things in every relationship? 
forgiveness, bearing with others. That means enduring for a long time when it's difficult. Patience, compassion, kindness, humility. Bring that into your difficult friendship. Bring that into your difficult family. Bring that into your roommate situation. These are the things that are the character and the ministry of Jesus lived out in our lives toward others, beginning to show glimmers of who Jesus is as you put on this new way of living. And it fits you, right? The the image here is the image of clothing. It's like Paul telling you, the old outfit doesn't look good on you anymore. Isn't that good news? When someone tells you, that doesn't look good on you. That's what a friend does, right? It's like my favorite writer, Chuck Kloschman, has this great essay about how you can tell a man doesn't have friends if he, ha- if he wears leather pants. Because no men look good in leather pants. <laughs> this is Paul telling you, you don't look good in leather pants. Guys, you don't look good in leather pants. Ladies, y'all look great in leather pants. <laughs> You're a new you. You need new pants. This is the outfit that fits you. Sorry, that was a distraction, wasn't it? It wasn't in the notes. <laughs> but I love Chuck Klosterman. You are beautiful in Christ. These are the clothes that fit you. I'll close with this story. Um, I heard from This American Life a couple of years ago, about five years ago now. It's the story of Daniel Solomon. Um, it's another story um, of an orphan. He spent the first seven years of his life in an orphanage in Romania. And by his words, he said, I was kind of like a kid who has never eaten chocolate and don't know what chocolate is or even wants chocolate and that I never knew what family was. I never knew what it meant to have one. I didn't know that I would ever want one. I had no taste for it or preference for it because I didn't even know they existed. So Rick and Heidi Solomon from Cleveland, Ohio, adopted Daniel. And he became theirs and they were his family. And when they got home, things unraveled. Because what Daniel had was severe, severe attachment disorder, which meant he couldn't form meaningful relationships with people. So he got very violent. He pitched fits. He physically attacked his adoptive parents several times. He strangled their dog. They actually brought in, they brought in medical professionals. They dosed him with ADHD meds. They tranquilized him. He attacked Heidi with a knife at one point. They had to hire in-home security. They had to remove everything from his room. So they lived with a security guard 24-7, making sure he was keeping him, that he was safe and they were safe from him. They were told that he would never change because of severe attachment disorder, that he didn't know and couldn't conceive what it meant to be loved or connected to people. They said he couldn't even develop a conscience a sense of what's good behavior towards people, and he couldn't feel guilt. He couldn't even feel that his bad behavior was wrong. And the way they used to treat attachment disorder was with really harsh measures, strong-arming children, restraining children, isolating children, physically subduing children. And Rick and Heidi Solomon decided to do the exact opposite. And that every time he lashed out, in violence, verbally, whatever it is, they moved physically close to him and helped him. To the point where what she decided to do is quit her job and for eight weeks said, for eight weeks, I will always be within 36 inches of you. Period, wherever he was, wherever she was in the house. I'm going to be near you no matter what. And when he lashed out, he wasn't given time out, he was given time in. They moved physically and emotionally closer to him until he was age 13, every night, he sat in their lap together and they fed him ice cream. Till age 13. This is what he said. 
I think it was about the third week talking about this time together. I think it was about the third week that I actually, like, I was with her more. I think I realized she's not as bad as I thought she was. And this is when things started to change. I didn't have as much time to hate her. And so I kind of liked her a little bit more. Like before, she would tell me not to do things, and then for 45 minutes I would hate her because she told me not to do this. Well, there wasn't a time where I could just go somewhere else and hate her because I was next to her. And I had to live with her whether I liked it or not, and things started to change inside of me. These are his last words in the interview. My life has been filled with many ups and downs, and I would say that my biggest triumph is that I have come to realize that my family loves me. Your biggest triumph in Stanford and in life will not be your GPA, and it will not be your job, and it will not be your friends, and it will not be your accomplishments, and it will not be your beauty, and it will not be your wins. Your biggest triumph in life will be when you look at Jesus and realize how much you're loved. Let's pray.